So over the past few days, maybe the past 12, 14 days, all the news has been about one thing. We've kind of stopped thinking about everything else and thought, I think rightly, about the impact of the death of the Queen and about all that will change. But now, all of the other news items are coming back with a vengeance. I don't know about you, but the one I see so much of at the moment is the hopelessness, the helplessness, the worry as we look ahead to a coming winter, the cost of living crisis. It's all you see if you look at the news or if you go on the website, you have features on people who are seriously asking this winter whether they'll have heating or eating. You have people seriously wondering how they're gonna cope. The bills are going up. There's no sign of crisis in Europe ending anytime soon with the war continuing and prices are not gonna go down. It's really quite worrying, isn't it? A lot of us worry about it. I don't know about you, sometimes I, I want to think about anything else so that I stop worrying about it. And yet it doesn't work. We worry because if we don't have what we need, then maybe we won't make it. It's a question that's in the back of our heads when we get all of these news items, all of these stories. Will we make it? Will we make it? And exactly that kind of question, that kind of worry, is where our reading began. Jesus is teaching a crowd, and someone cuts in, someone interrupts him. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, family conflict is always bitter, but especially when there's money involved. We don't really know the backstory, but you can imagine it. Fathers died, the mothers died, there's an inheritance to split, and one brother feels he's hard done by. And so all of the worries are in his head. If I don't get what I need, how will I make it? And so, in the crowd, he puts up a hand and says, Jesus, would you just sort my brother out? Jesus, if you could just... And what's fascinating is how Jesus responds to that. He doesn't take sides, but instead... He starts talking about greed. And we have no evidence that the man in verse 13 is sort of uniquely greedy. But the reason why Jesus starts talking about that is that he's getting to the heart of the issue. He's putting his finger on the thing we are so prone to get wrong when we worry about money. Verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's the thing we need to know in a cost of living crisis. That's the thing this man needed to know as he interrupted Jesus. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life is not about getting more for yourself, having more for yourself. There is more than that to it. Life isn't about the stuff you can accumulate, the money you can earn. Do you believe that? Jesus wants you to believe that because it's the truth and it's the truth that will save your life. So I have a couple of things for us to see this evening. Here's my first point. First, because life is more than stuff, be rich towards God. That might come up on the screen. Before, because life is more than stuff, be rich towards God. 
And to help us understand that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, Jesus tells a parable. Michelle read it earlier. It's a parable about a man who was already quite rich. He had some land. Anyone here got land? I mean, that's, that's wealth. I, I don't have land. <laughs> he had land, and his land did really well one harvest. Everything he was growing was yielding an abundant crop. He did so well that he had the kind of problem most of us dream of having. He didn't have enough room for all of his amazing stuff. Everything was going so well, he begins this, I think, slightly comical conversation with himself. He starts talking to himself and says, what shall I do? My barns are too small. Here's what I'll do. I'll tear them down, I'll build bigger ones, and then I'll have plenty of space for all my grain. And then I'll be able to stop worrying. I'll be able to stop working. I'll have everything I need for many years. And I'll be able to say to myself, don't worry about it, relax. And you can hear the, the deep satisfaction in his voice, can't you? He's like Winnie the Pooh with his paw all the way in a full jar of honey. He's like Gollum, finally united with the ring. He's just drooling with the thought of all that he is going to be able to enjoy. And you know, he's not just talking about his investment portfolio. Literally, what's going on in verse 19 is he's saying, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. See, this man thinks, when I have all of this stuff safely put away, then my soul can rest. Then I'll be able to nourish and feed my soul at last. Then all my worries will be put to one side. Then my soul will be fulfilled. And you know what? I think a lot of us think that that is true. Why else do people watch reality TV shows about obscene wealth? Why else does anyone care about the Kardashians or Made in Chelsea? Why would we watch something so sickeningly expensive, a lifestyle you could never have, and enjoy it? We watch it because we're fantasizing, because we think, oh, if I just had that, if I had that crazy amount of money, then my soul could rest. Oh, sure, there'd be problems and dramas, but they're the kinds you watch on reality TV. And we think, I'd rather have that than the crushing burden of wondering whether I can make my bills. Why do we watch it? Because we think that our soul will be happy when we have all that stuff. We think that money will change everything. That's why every YouTube advert you see, or in my case, skip, is about getting more money for yourself. Accountants hate him. This one trick will save you thousands. I remember watching a video once in which a man, a bald, angry-looking man, said pensioners in Wales have been getting ripped off for years. And I think to myself, why did the algorithm give this to me? What, what have I been... And, and I didn't watch the rest of it, but apparently there's something about funeral costs. Anyway, everything around us is saying, save your money, spend more, your money rightly, do the right thing. We even have that phrase, don't we, smart money. Smart money says, smart money's on this. What's the implication? Only a fool doesn't know how to get as much money as possible. Only a fool isn't doing this with their money or that with their money. And so Jesus' story is actually a shock because this is not a smart man. And even though his life looks so successful on the surface, whatever he is, he is not smart money. Jesus tells us that this man is actually a failure. So this man has been having a conversation with himself, and then he gets interrupted by God. Verse 20, 
But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You fool. God can be very blunt sometimes, but he has to be because we need the shock of this story. So often we automatically assume that someone with money probably deserves it, probably smarter or savvier, knew how to get their way through life. They're a captain of industry. They're generating wealth. They've been great with their money. We should learn from them. We should lift them up. And Jesus says, no, no, you fool. We need to understand all the things this man is getting wrong. So the truth is he thinks he's going to be able to enjoy life. And yet God says, you fool, because within only a few hours, not only will he not be enjoying his stuff, it won't even be his. And there are lots of things we could say about what this man is getting wrong. Let, let me just share three things he doesn't recognize, three basic facts about reality he is not living in tune with. Fact one, you don't know how long you have. You don't know how long you have in life. This man is daydreaming about the years that he has ahead of him thinking about all the summer nights he'll spend sipping wine on one of his many balconies. He's dreaming of all the time he's going to enjoy, and yet he doesn't have the time he thinks he does. You do not know how long you have. None of us know that. You might have a very long life ahead of you. You might have a very short life ahead of you. And not only do you not know which one it will be, nothing you do can change it. No matter how healthy you are, no matter how prudent you are, life has a sell-by date. Yours does, mine does, and we just don't know what it is. We might be living for a few more decades, or only a few more years, or only a few more hours. You don't know how long you have. Why is it we never think about that? Why is it we have such a great taboo around the obvious fact that all of us are going to die. We just kid ourselves about it all the time. I wonder if you've heard that old story. There are three demons talking to the devil, the father of lies, figuring out what lies to tell human beings. One of them comes up to the devil and says, I know what we're going to do. We'll tell them there's no God. And the devil says, C minus. It's a start, I guess. But the problem is, real atheism is very hard to keep up. People always sense there's more. Let's, let's do better. And the second demon thinks, goes, okay, okay, let's tell them there's no hell. And the devil goes, mm, B, B, I suppose, it's, it's, it's good. And the problem with that is people will always sense the reality of hell, even if it's only something they want for other people. Not sure that'll work. And then the third demon thinks hard and goes, let's tell them there's no hurry. And the devil says, A plus, that ought to do it. We love kidding ourselves about this, but it is a lie. You don't know how long you have. None of us do. Here's the second fact he wasn't living in line with. You can't take any of it with you. If you think about the great burial traditions of the world, so often people bury their great leaders with their treasures. Crack open a, a pharaoh's pyramid or unearth a chieftain's boat burial, and you see all these amazing things. And the idea was that this great person could go to the afterlife surrounded by all their massive um, stash. But where is all that stuff now? It's in museums, being looked at by bored children. <laughs> then 
they're not enjoying it. They're not enjoying it. They don't have it with them anymore. They have gone to meet their maker, and none of that stuff is with them. You can't take any of it with you. I don't know if any of you watched the committal service last Monday night. There's quite a poignant moment where the crown, the orb, the scepter, was taken from the coffin, put on the altar. And that's because whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, whether you are literally the Queen of England or whether you are a nobody, you will meet your maker the same way as everyone else. At funeral services, we read out a verse from the Bible. We brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. This man thought his stuff would make a difference. He thought it would feed his soul. But he wasn't going to have any of it before he knew it. You can't take it with you. Fact three, you will face God as judge. Here's another fact we love kidding ourselves about. You will face God as judge. This man has been talking to himself. He thinks that life is a soliloquy. You know, one of those great speeches on stage where just one person is talking. He only realizes too late that life is a dialogue and God gets the last word. He's been living as if he belongs at the center of everything. What will I do? I will tear down my barns, build bigger ones, then I'll say to myself. But nobody belongs at the center of everything except God. And that's why God says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. God will hold him to account. And again, that's what we want him to do in a world full of injustice. Most of the time, we only want him to do it for other people. But his justice will do it for us as well. He will hold us to account. He will say, how have you lived the precious life I've given you? How have you treated the people I made around you? How have you treated the planet I put you on? How have you treated me? The one who made us, the one who gives us everything, he will demand of us our souls. He will ask us all those questions. You will face Jesus as judge. By the way, I think that's what's going on in verse 14. The man says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Jesus says, verse 14, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And I think this is one of those things where Jesus is saying something at one level, but then hinting at something more deeply. You might know that another moment in the gospel, someone comes up to him and says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And what Jesus isn't doing there is saying, oh, I'm not good. He's saying, I'm not just a teacher. I'm more than that. Same sort of thing's happening here. Who appointed me, a judge or an arbiter between you? At one level, he's saying, don't involve me in that. At a deeper level, it's not a rhetorical question. Who made Jesus judge? The Father. And if Jesus is the God-appointed judge of everything, what are you doing trying to make him solve this petty little dispute? If you will face God as judge, it's not about trying to get him on your side. No, rather, all of us need to make sure we are on his side. Because life is about more than stuff, be rich towards God. That's what he says in verse 21. Be rich towards God. And see, see, being rich isn't the problem to Jesus. It's being rich in a way that stores it all for yourself. Jesus is saying, be rich another way. Be rich for God. Now, how will we do that? 
Well, Jesus is going to unpack that through our reading. That's why in verse 22, he says, therefore, I tell you. That tells us that everything that follows is him explaining how we can be rich towards God. So here's my second point to look at the rest of the passage. Because life is more than stuff, rest in God's fatherly care. Rest in God's fatherly care. Verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. And again, Jesus is making the same point. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And you might be thinking, come on, Jesus, read the room. There's a cost of living crisis. You might have heard this parable about a rich fool, and you're thinking, my problem isn't barns that can't contain wealth, it's that my barns are empty. But what Jesus is saying in this verse is, all of us, all of us are endangered by the love of money. Love of money is so spiritually corrosive because it can corrupt you when you have money and when you don't. This rich fool was allowing money to run his life through wealth and all the problems of wealth. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, verse 22, be aware that this can be a problem for you as well. How? You can let money run your life through worry. You can believe at a deep level that life does consist in an abundance of possessions. That life is all about stuff. And so when you don't have it, you are panicking all the time. You are sweating 24-7. How will you cope? How will you live? But it's all rooted in that wrong understanding. Just like the super rich fool those of us with nothing need to hear from Jesus that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so he says, do not worry. And at this point, can I just say, a lot of Christians I know use passages like this almost as a stick to beat themselves with. They're already worried about all sorts of things, and then they hear Jesus say, do not worry. And then there's an additional layer of guilt because there's a command, and oh no, they're worrying, and now they're worrying about worrying. That would be missing the point. What Jesus is saying in these words is not a stick to beat you with. He spends so much time telling us not to worry because he knows we will and because he wants something better for us. He wants us to experience the fatherly care of God. And so he helps us in these verses. So many beautiful things to say here. Let's just pick up a few of them. First, he says, have your eyes on the right things. Look at the right things. He says, don't look at other people. He talks about how the pagan world is running after all these other things. He says, when it comes to worry, look at birds instead. Look at ravens, scavengers. Look at flowers, look at lilies. Why? Because when you look at other people, all they will show you is frantic worry. But when you look at birds and lilies, what they will show you is God's fatherly care, how he provides. The fact that birds don't have barns or storehouses, and yet they're fed. The fact that lilies don't have tailors, and yet they look gorgeous. Do you remember how dry and, and, and brown and yellow the grass got over the summer? And then we had, like, what, three days of rain that God sent, and suddenly it burst into lush green, and there were flowers. God does that for the stuff you walk on. That's how lavish he is. That's how generous he is. And you are worth more than grass, much more. You are worth more than birds, much more. Jesus is saying, look at the right thing. And that's because worry doesn't work. 
Verse 25, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And if you have a footnote, which is why it's good to bring a paper Bible if you can, you might see it says there, or add a single cubit to your height. Worry doesn't make you taller. I've tried. (laughs) Worry doesn't change anything. Corrie ten Boom was an amazing Christian witness and writer, and she writes this beautiful thing. It'll come up on the screen. She says, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Now, remember, this is not a stick to beat yourself with, but it is a truth to tell your heart. And it might be that tonight you need to ask the Lord to help you believe that. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And there is a key to help us get that. It's one word, actually. It's the word more. More. So often in this passage, Jesus says more. Verse 22, life is more than food, the body more than clothes. We might think Jesus will say, look at you, getting all worried over stuff that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter, does it? That's not what he says at all. He says, your life does matter. Your body does matter. In fact, it matters so much that it's more than food, more than clothing. That's the point. When we start worrying about those things, we actually act as if that's all life is really about. But Jesus says, no, it's more, more. Because a satisfied life is about more than what you have to eat. A flourishing body is about more than the stuff you're wearing. Or just take verse 30. Jesus begins the sentence saying, for the pagan world runs after all such things. How do you think he'll finish that sentence? Don't be like them, worrying about your little old life as if it even matters. That's what a lot of us might think. You you come into church that you realize how little you really matter and you just realize that that's fine and get on with it. Not at all. Not at all. Jesus does think you are worth worrying about. He does think that your life is worth worrying about. He does think that your challenges are worth worrying about, but you don't have to be the one worrying. This is how he finishes it. Verse 30, for the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows you need them. Yes, of course you're worth worrying about. You're so precious, but you don't have to be the one worrying. Let God do it. Leave it to him. The Father is on your case, so you don't have to be. He's the one who never sleeps, so you can sleep at night. He is the one who cares for you, so you can hand all your cares over to him. He's on the case, you don't have to be. And that means, verse 31, we can seek his kingdom, confident that he will provide. And as our reading ended, that does involve our giving. Seeking God's kingdom will mean growing in generosity. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. See what Jesus is saying? Be set free from the God of money. Cut his hold over your life by letting go of your money, by giving it away so that it doesn't control you. And money is a very cruel God. When you don't have it, it taunts you with your lack. When you do have it, it's never enough. And Jesus says, don't worship that God who will only empty you out. Worship the one who made you. 
Discover that love and freedom that he gives from a false god. And that will make you generous. It'll make you someone who can give more and more. Now, again, classic Christian cliche, Jesus doesn't have a problem with you owning stuff. But when stuff owns you, it is a problem. And Jesus is too loving not to care about that. So I guess one of our questions to ask tonight is, are we giving? Are we hearing what Jesus says? Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Particularly with the hard winter ahead, are we thinking only about ourselves and our needs? Or can we give in generosity? But being rich towards God isn't just our giving, although it includes that. It's wider than that too. Verse 31, it's about seeking God's kingdom first. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And so there's another question to ask ourselves. Are we seeking? Are we making his kingdom our priority? Is God's glory among the nations our greatest desire? Is that something we're praying for? Those are two ways in which we can be rich towards God. But let me finish with, I think, the amazing promise that Jesus makes. And I absolutely love it because you see it if you read verse 31 and then verse 32 together. This is, by the way, the good news about why you can rest in God's care. Verse 31, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do you hear that? Verse 31, seek the kingdom. Verse 32, the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's why this is a God you can worship and he will not hollow you out. He isn't saying, seek, work, let's see if you're up for it. He's saying, seek the kingdom that I long to give you. He's saying, give and be generous because you will never outgive my generosity and care. He's saying, trust me, leave worry to one side so that you can experience what it's like, little flock, to rest in my care. See, so often we are like that rich fool. We love the stuff we have and we want to keep it for ourselves. But God is not like that. He's not stingy. He's not withholding. He doesn't hold back good things from us. He pours them out. He lavishes on us every spiritual blessing. And in fact, he has given us himself in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So, in the light of his giving, we can rest, we can receive. Let's be still for a moment. And in a moment, I'm going to pray. Perhaps you want to ask the Lord to search your heart. Are we giving? Ask the Lord to break the hold of money and love of money. Are we seeking? Ask the Lord to orientate your life towards his kingdom. But best of all, are we resting? Ask the Lord to show you his fatherly care.